Our scripture today is from the Gospel of Luke, verse 14, verses 1 to 24. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to share a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. A man suffering from an abnormal swelling of the body was there. Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, does the law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? But they said nothing. Jesus took hold of the sick man, cured him, and then let him go. He said to them, suppose your child or ox fell into a ditch on the Sabbath day. Wouldn't you immediately pull him out? But they had no response. When Jesus noticed how the guests sought out the best seats at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host. The host you invited, both of you, will come and say to you, give your seat to this other person. Embarrassed, you will take your seat in the least important place. Instead, when you receive an invitation, go and sit in the least important place. When your host approaches you, he will say, friend, move up here to a better seat. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Then Jesus said to the person who had invited him, when you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. And you would be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. When one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remarks, he said to Jesus, happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom. <laughs> Jesus replied, a certain man hosted a large dinner and invited many people. When it was time for the dinner to begin, he sent his servant to tell the invited guests, come, the dinner is now ready. One by one, they all began to make excuses. The first one told him, I bought a farm and must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five teams of oxen and I'm going to check on them. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go quickly to the city streets the busy ones and the side streets, and bring the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. The servant said, Master, your instructions have been followed, and there is still room. The master said to the servant, Go to the highways and back alleys and urge people to come to this, to my house, so my house will be filled. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will taste my dinner. The word of the Lord.
I think most of us here in this room have been to a wedding reception once or twice, yes? The last wedding reception I had a chance to go to was my sister's. I got to officiate at the wedding, and then we had the reception. And, and she uh, and her new husband had the reception in a beautiful museum in Baltimore on the Inner Harbor, so that had a lovely view of the water. And of course, it was set up beautifully with centerpieces. It just was very, very lovely. All, most wedding receptions in the U.S. have things in common. Uh, we usually have a cake. There's some kind of meal often. There's dancing, and sometimes there's a band, sometimes there's a DJ. And many, many of these wedding receptions have assigned seating that has been very carefully thought out. So imagine you go to a wedding reception and you see a really nice table right at the front of the room. It's got a great view of the cake, so you know you're going to be able to see the couple cut the cake. And maybe it's near the dance floor and the buffet line, so you're perfectly set up. So you take your seat, and then, oh, it's time for the new married couple to come in. And the DJ announces that they're coming in, and everybody's so excited, and they clap. And they're all excited as the couple comes in. But then all of the eyes swivel to where you're sitting as the couple makes their way across the room to the table where you are. And maybe one of them says to you, oh, hey, you're in our seat. Did you not notice the place cards when you came in? You're at table 20. Because <laughs> maybe you're not a groomsman or a bridesmaid. You, don't ha you have no business sitting up at the head table. Maybe you just sit next to the bride or the groom at work in the cubicle next door. So you gotta go to the back and oh, the shame. You'd wanna slide under the table, I think, rather than have to walk back to your seat while everyone is looking at you. We don't have too many situations uh, today that have assigned seating like that, kind of according to rank kind of according to how important you are. And in Jesus' time, there were people that would have posted symposia and other things where there was a seat of honor and you sat according to your rank. But we can relate to it through this idea of a, a wedding reception, which is, in fact, what Jesus is talking about in his parable, a wedding banquet. And he's reminding the, the people that he's speaking with that when you get to this kind of wedding banquet, maybe it's better to not take the seat of honor and be asked to move to the back and give your seat up to somebody else. Maybe it's better to just take the seat in the back and have the opportunity to be invited forward. And he says, Jesus says, all who lift themselves up will be brought low and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. 
I think what Jesus is talking about here is a sense of humility, having a sense of humility versus a sense of inflated self-importance. It's better to sit in the back and be brought forward. For some context to this parable, Jesus is having a meal at the home of a leader of the Pharisees. In Jesus' time, we, we should remember that in Israel, pretty much most of the people were all Jewish. And like today, where we have all kinds of Christians, there were multiple branches of Judaism. And the Pharisees were one of the branches. And they were known for setting themselves apart as scrupulous followers of the law. They just were very careful to follow the law to the detail. And they were known as being virtuous, as being very sober in their ways, as disliking luxuries. And because they were so virtuous and such, uh, so good at following the law, they had a lot of influence in Israel in Jesus' time. And sometimes when we read the scriptures, we'll see that it looks like Jesus and the Pharisees are set up to be in conflict with one another. But here, we have Jesus having a meal at the home of a leader of the Pharisees. So they weren't always in conflict. And in fact, if we look a little deeper, we will see that they weren't always contentious, and it is possible that the Pharisees and Jesus actually agreed on a number of teachings. They both accepted God's kingship. They both taught that we should want to avoid sin out of love for God. They both believe that you should fulfill God's commandments without expectation of reward. And they both preached and taught that there was a future time coming when God's kingship over all would be universally recognized. But one of the places that they diverged in their point of view was over the treatment of the sick and the poor. In Jesus' time, and I, I think a little in our time if we really think about it, but especially in Jesus' time, there was an idea, a belief that health and wealth were signs of God's favor. If you were healthy and you were wealthy, that meant you had God's favor. And if you were sick and you were poor, then you did something to deserve God's punishment. You were being punished by God. And the effect of that was that the healthy, the wealthy, the virtuous, seemingly virtuous, separated from the mass of people that were sick and poor. The Pharisees 
are people too. They are people with virtuous intentions. But people are people. Especially when people have virtuous intentions, there is a lot of room for things to go horribly wrong. And all this virtuousness can lead to hypocrisy. Like the one that we get in the beginning of the scripture reading, where you have a situation where you can have a person who is visibly ill, this poor man was all swollen with fluid. He had a condition called dropsy, which we don't know what the underlying condition is, but dropsy is a retention, an extreme retention of fluid. So here we have this whole crew of virtuous people having a meal, and we have this sick, ill man that comes in, and we don't know whether he was invited to the party or whether he just wandered in off the street. The scripture doesn't tell us. We, don't, we do know he doesn't stay after he's healed, but he's here, and he's in front of these virtuous people. But this kind of hypocrisy allows you to have a situation where you have a sick person here right in front of you and you have a person who can heal them and yet you're going to debate for a minute on whether God would actually want you to heal this person because it's the Sabbath. This kind of hypocrisy is a kind of self blindness, where out of a sense of self-importance, our own virtue, our own self-importance, we expect a kind of humility out of other people that we don't apply to ourselves. Because this man with this dropsy had to stand there and patiently wait for other people who were healthy to decide whether it was the right time for his suffering to end or not. We have a system set up then where some people are second class and the people who are healthy and wealthy get to decide for them when the right time is for them to be healed and well. I think it's important to remember when Jesus says people should bring themselves low to remember the context. Because he's telling these parables, he's saying this thing, this thing about being brought low, make yourself low, to the Pharisees in the home of a leader of the Pharisees. Because when he's out in the street, and in the mountains and in the valleys, preaching to the sick and to the poor and to the lame and to the widows and to the orphans that come to see him, that flock to him, he's preaching to lift them up. Because they're already low. So he's preaching to the Pharisees to bring themselves low and to the poor and the sick and the widows and the orphans to bring them up. 
to bring a sense of equality, of equaling out. He's not asking to flip the power structure all the way over so that those that were sick and out of power are now on top of everybody else so that we just have the same broken structure. But he's asking for an equalization. I think these parables that he's saying to the Pharisees at this dinner are implying that the Pharisees are assuming by their virtue that they have the best seat at God's table. While ignoring the fact or the idea that God might want some other people to sit at the table too. And I think that's where this business of inviting people who can't repay you comes in, where Jesus starts talking about having people over for lunch or for dinner that can't repay you. Because if you're consistently inviting only people to your home who can repay you, if you have a wealthy neighbor, if you have relatives that you know will invite you over next week, or if you have a friend that you trade back and forth lunch dates where you pay one time and then they pay one time, Generosity stays in this circle. I don't hear Jesus in here saying never have a meal and be generous to people who can repay you. But if you are only doing that, the generosity stays within this little circle. But if you invite people in who cannot repay you, then the generosity flows out and lifts people up. It becomes a kind of justice that flows out like a river, like an ever-flowing stream that lifts people up. Our central metaphor for God's kingdom is an abundant table. We are called to the table, invited. God calls us to experience and remember at the table all the good things that God has done for us. And God is the host at the table. And as the host, God's abundance flows out to each of us in a way that we can never repay, which in its way is its own kind of equalizer. Because we are all recipients of God's blessing, and we are all unable to repay. And that's what I think this last section is about this section about the man who is going to have a big party. And then on the day of the party, when all the food is ready and his servant goes out to bring everybody to the party, the people that have been previously invited say, oh, no, thank you. I am too busy. I have some new oxen. I have newly gotten married. I do not have time to come to your party. 
And then this man says, okay, well, just go invite everybody that you can find. Invite the people that are sick. Invite the people that are lame. And then there's still room, so just go in the street and invite people that are out there. Have them come in. And I think that this is a warning, in a way, to the Pharisees for taking their invitation for granted and that they may soon be left out. For all of us today in hearing this scripture, I think the call or the reminder is that we are all guests at God's table. We're all the people invited to the party. Because we are invited to the party and we are definitely not the host, then we aren't in charge of the guest list. We aren't the ones to stand at the door and decide who gets to come in and who has got to stay out. And we most certainly are not in charge of the seating chart of who gets to sit where in the kingdom of God. We are simply guests meant to be grateful for the invitation. But the good news is that God's table is an infinite table. The good news is that the host will forgive us, in fact, has already forgiven us if we show up late, dressed in the wrong outfit, having forgotten to RSVP, but then just showing up at the last minute. Because the good news is that everybody who accepts God's invitation will get a seat at the table and will share in the meal. May it be so. Amen.